Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. So hello and welcome to this first AKC lecture in this series titled The Life of the Mind, What is Mental Health? So I promised you a philosophical perspective on mental health, so I'm now going to turn to think philosophically about some of the ideas and questions that are raised when we start to think about mental health, and then I'm going to talk about a particular philosopher, my favourite philosopher, Spinoza, and think in some detail about how his philosophy can help us to think about questions of mental health. But just more generally, I mean, stepping back to think um, about this question of of mental health, there are all sorts of really deep and um, central, fundamental philosophical questions that are raised by this category or this idea of mental health. The first, of course, is what is the mind? The mind is not any kind of physical object. Um, So what exactly is the mind and what does it mean for the mind to be healthy? If we look back over the history of philosophy, we um, can see that the idea of the mind is associated with other concepts such as soul, spirit, psyche and the brain. When we talk about psychology, that word psyche is actually a Greek word which we translate as soul. So soul and psyche Um, are two very closely related ideas. This word spirit is also important. Um, It's quite a kind of contentious uh, term, really. People talk about the spiritual life or spiritual health. They may want to see human beings as spiritual beings. But what does spirit or spirituality mean? The German word Geist is often translated as spirit, And that means a kind of collective consciousness. And so I think this idea of spirit opens up um, the possibility that when we're talking about the mind, we're not just talking about individual human beings and their mind, but we can think more about a kind of collective mentality. Um, And perhaps that might make us think about um, not just the health of individuals, but the health of a culture, for example, or the health of a society. So this idea of spirit opens up that possibility. And then, of course, there's the brain, which is a physical organ in the body. What's the relationship between the mind and the brain? Can the mind be reduced to the physical processes happening in the brain? Or are we thinking of of something else when we use this word mind and think about our mental life? This leads to the next question, what is the mind's relationship to the body? This is a very vexed philosophical question, um, and I'm going to be addressing it when I talk about uh, Spinoza, because he has a really interesting view of the mind's relationship to the body. And then finally, another big question, what does healthy mean if we're talking about mental health? What exactly do we mean by health? There are various different notions that we could be working with here. 
We might be thinking about biological health, ultimately, you know, just being alive, being able to survive. So that's one notion of health. But often I think when we are thinking about our health as human beings, our mental health, we're not just talking about bare survival. We're thinking about ideas of flourishing, of fulfilment, of happiness, and also of virtue. So if we look back through the philosophical tradition, most philosophers see a very close connection between happiness and virtue. Virtue meaning you know, the, the moral life, what it is to live a good human life. And many philosophers have argued that a fully kind of flourishing, healthy human life has to be a virtuous life, um, a life lived in a good way. And that, of course, opens up the question of how we relate to other people. So again, we, we're moving away from an idea of mental health as purely something individualistic. And I think the other lecturers will also be opening up social questions about um, how, how a society and how a culture can um, be more or less conducive to mental health, as well as shaping our very understanding of what mental health even is in the first place. So this is Spinoza. Um, I'm writing a book about Spinoza at the moment titled Spinoza's Religion. So he's a philosopher that I've spent a lot of time with, um, certainly in the last couple of years. But since studying Spinoza at university, I've just been fascinated by him. And, you know, he's not the only philosopher I've worked on, but I think Spinoza is my favourite philosopher. Um, and that's partly because I actually find reading Spinoza's works quite therapeutic um, Spinoza writes, um, well, he writes about all sorts of big metaphysical and ethical questions, but um, the central chapter of his great work, which is called The Ethics, is about human emotions. And he gives us this amazing, meticulous analysis of human emotions. And when I read that analysis, it actually helps me to understand myself um, and there's something very, very sort of therapeutic about that. And Spinoza argues that when we do understand ourselves, that is, in fact, a route to um, a healthy, happy, flourishing, virtuous life. So I'm going to explain in detail what he means by that. But first, I want to just say something about who Spinoza was, when he lived, what his context was. So he was born in 1632 and he died in 1677. And so the 17th century is the early modern period. Um, it's later than the medieval era, um, and it's this sense of transitioning into the modern period. And that's quite important because um, Spinoza, like his contemporaries, Descartes, for example, is one of the thinkers who is who can be seen as an architect of modernity. He's starting to address the philosophical questions that come to be the defining questions of the modern era. He was born Baruch Spinoza, but when he, he published his works, he wrote under a Latin name, Benedict de Spinoza. So Benedict is actually just a, a Latin translation of Baruch. Um, Baruch is a Hebrew word meaning blessed, um, and Benedict is like a benediction, so a blessing. So he has a Hebrew name, Baruch, and Spinoza was born um, in a Jewish family, a Portuguese Jewish family who had um, emigrated to the Netherlands. Um, and so Spinoza was born in Amsterdam and he was raised in Amsterdam's Jewish community 
but famously he left that community as a young man when he was 22 or 23. This was quite a controversial time in Spinoza's life. He was sort of kicked out essentially of his community. Uh, He was banned by the community um, because, well, we don't really know why. Um, It's a big question among Spinoza scholars, but he was basically teaching philosophical ideas that were seen to be um, unacceptable to his Jewish community. So he left um, his Jewish community never to return and then spent the rest of his life and wrote his philosophical works during the 60s and the 70s um, in a broadly Christian context. So the Netherlands was in the 17th century a relatively tolerant country. The Dutch Republic was more tolerant than some other um, European countries, but there was a Dutch state church, which, which was a Calvinist church. So Calvinism was the sort of dominant religion um, in, in Spinoza's society. And Spinoza was a great critic of Christianity. Um, he certainly criticised the Calvinism that was very powerful in his own society, but he also was criticised Catholic um, ideas and Catholic teaching too. So Spinoza, because he was so critical of Christianity, he gained a reputation both in his own time and subsequently as an atheist. And for this reason, um, he was he was a very controversial figure. His great work of philosophy, The Ethics, was published posthumously. So um, he didn't want to publish this book when he was alive because he was um, afraid of the controversy it would bring and the trouble it would cause. So he arranged for The Ethics to be published after his death by his friends, and they published it pretty quickly, a few months after he died. But then it was, um, you know, fairly soon it was placed on the Catholic Church's index of banned books. Um, and so this gives some sense of the kind of the kind of notoriety and controversy that has surrounded Spinoza. So he was sometimes accused of being an atheist, but this was not a label that he himself accepted. In fact, the, the ethics begins by um, talking about God, and Spinoza argued that everything that exists is in God. Um, We are all in God and there is no separation between God and nature, between God and the world. So that's a philosophical doctrine that's sometimes known as pantheism, which means that God is sort of everywhere or everything is God. It's more precise actually to call Spinoza's philosophy panentheism, which means not that everything is God, but that everything is in God. And there's a sort of subtle difference there, which I'm not going to go into in today's lecture. But anyway, Spinoza's religious thought is is really interesting because he can be interpreted as an atheist. Um, and as I said, he was certainly critical of Christianity while also being sort of very influenced by it. Um, but he's also sometimes seen as a religious thinker. Um, and the book I'm writing at the moment is called Spinoza's Religion. And it's trying to figure out um, Spinoza's relation to religion and in what sense Spinoza is a religious thinker and what what new notion of religion comes out of Spinoza's work. He was also a very um, profound and influential critic of Descartes' philosophy. So in the 17th century, when um, Spinoza was studying philosophy and discussing philosophical ideas with his friends, Descartes' works, which were really from a generation earlier, were really important and really influential. One of Spinoza's first books was actually um, an exposition of Descartes' philosophy. So he wrote a book explaining um, the principles 
of Descartes' philosophy, but also as well as um, you know explaining them, he also uh, was quite critical of Descartes' philosophy. So he's really influenced by Descartes, but he's also a great critic of Descartes. So in order to understand Spinoza, we have to think just a little bit about Descartes, in particular Descartes' dualism. So Descartes is often associated with dualism. It's a word that uh, we often hear. When philosophers talk about Descartes, they often talk about Cartesian dualism. So Descartes, as you can see here, he was born about 30, 40 years before Spinoza, and he died in 1650 during Spinoza's lifetime, um, just before, in fact, Spinoza was expelled from the Jewish community. And he is, as you know, I think one of the most famous philosophers in the Western tradition. He described the human being as a thinking thing. The Latin is res cogitans. Res means thing and cogitans means thinking. Um, and you may recognise this word cogitans because it's quite similar to um, perhaps the most famous quotation in the history of philosophy, cogito ergo sum. So if you know any, any uh, sentence <laughs> that Descartes wrote, it's likely to be that one, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So cogito means I think and cogitans um, means, means thinking. So this gives some indication of the fact that for Descartes, the human capacity for thinking, what we might call the human mind or the human intellect, is the most important part of the human being. We are primarily thinking things. It's our intellect that is um, the most important part of us. It's the best part of us. It's the part of us that Descartes believed should be kind of in charge of our lives. We should be following our intellect um, rather than following other aspects of our being. So when people talk about Cartesian dualism, they are referring to Descartes' view that the mind and the body are two distinct substances, two separate things. So we have a mind um, and we have a body. And when we see them as two distinct substances, which is what dualism means, it, it means this kind of separation between two things. This, of course, raises the question, well, how is the mind connected to the body? You know, for example, if a thought arises in my mind, oh, you know, I'm hungry, I'd like to eat something, um, and then my body kind of walks into the kitchen to and reaches into the, my hand reaches into the fridge to get myself something to eat. What's the connection between that mental event, that wish, that volition, that thought, and then the physical action? You know, does, does the thought cause the action? Um, what, you know, how do we explain that connection between the mind and the body if they're, they're not just two separate substances, but they're two separate kinds of substance, yeah, a mental substance and a physical substance? So what's the interaction between the two? And that really is the question or the problem that Descartes bequeathed to future generations of philosophers. Having said all this, though, um, Descartes is sometimes caricatured as a dualist, and I want to emphasise that, in fact, he did have a holistic view of mental life. He certainly emphasised intellectual development and, and thought that thinking was the most important part of the human being. But at the same time, 
he saw the human soul as the seat of passions or emotions and virtues. So he wrote a book called The Passions of the Soul, Les Passions du Lame um, in French. And so here we have a sense of the soul as um, a passionate, emotional um, part of us and also the part of us where we develop moral virtues. So, for example, Descartes was really um, interested in the virtue of generosity. He thought that that was one of the most important uh, moral virtues that should be cultivated. So he doesn't just see us as kind of intellects in a, in a, in a narrow sense. Yeah, he has a he has a broader um, idea of what we could call the life of the mind that will include emotion and virtue as well as intellectual understanding. So as I said, Spinoza was a great uh, critic of Descartes, but he did share Descartes' holistic view of mental life. He also considered intellectual development alongside an analysis of emotions and virtues. So the image here is um, from the title page of Spinoza's Ethics, this great work of philosophy that was published in 1677, just after he died. And it's very difficult to see, partly because the writing is small and it's in Latin. Um, but the first part of the ethics is de Deo, which means of God, on God. The second part is on the nature and origin of the mind, the human mind. Um, the third part is the origin and nature of what he calls the affects, which means the emotions or the passions. Um, the third part is then on what he calls human servitude or the power of the affects. And there he's talking about how our emotions often rule us um, in ways that are not particularly conducive to our flourishing. We're kind of in bondage to our, our passions, our emotions. But then in part five, the final part of the ethics, he talks about the power of the mind, the potentia intellectus, the power of the intellect, or... Um, the freedom, the freedom of the human being. So here we have, um, at the end of the ethics, a, a, a part where he argues that um, the intellect is the most powerful part of us and it's through the intellectual life, through the life of the mind, that we gain some kind of human freedom. So that gives us some sense of the um, structure of the ethics in that second part of the ethics, where he talks, talks about the nature and the origin of the human mind, he, uh, he disagrees with Descartes' view that the mind and the body are separate substances. So he disagrees with Cartesian dualism. Instead of being separate substances, the mind and the body are two aspects of the same individual. We can think of it as sort of two sides of the same coin, you know, rather than being two separate things. Two, two sort of different expressions of um, who I am. So, you know, my mind and my body are two different aspects of myself. They're two different expressions um, of my life. And in fact, Spinoza argued that this category of substance, which Descartes had applied to individual minds and bodies, um, he said that this category of substance isn't really appropriate to apply to to human beings or to any individual finite thing. So a substance means something that is self-sufficient, something that exists independently and autonomously. And Spinoza argued that only God is a substance. 
and everything else that exists is what he calls a mode of substance, so a kind of aspect of this one substance, um, rather than something independent in its own right. And as I mentioned earlier, um, another way of putting this is to say that everything that exists is in God. So not only are um, our minds and our bodies not separate substances, um, but we are not separate from, from the whole of what exists, which Spinoza calls God. And sometimes he, he says, um, not just God, but God or nature. So he sees the totality, um, the kind of ecosystem that everything is a part of, um, as God. But alternatively, he says, if we don't want to call it God, we can call it nature. So we're all a part of nature. We're all part of one big ecosystem. And that is how he understands the human being. Um, and this means that our individual minds, um, our, our kind of mental life, um, are not separate from the whole of consciousness, the whole um, possibility of intellectual thought. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. As I said, for Spinoza, the mind and the body are two aspects of the same individual. And the way he puts it in the ethics, in part two of the ethics, is to say, the mind is the idea of the body. Now, by idea, Spinoza doesn't mean a kind of picture or representation of a thing. You know, sometimes when we talk about ideas, we imagine that um, if I have an idea of a table, I just have a sort of picture of the table in my mind. Um, that's not what Spinoza means by idea. By idea, Spinoza means an act of thinking. So an idea is an intellectual activity. It's my mind's conceiving of something, or you could say um, my mind's consciousness of something. So Spinoza argues that whatever happens in the body is perceived by the mind, and also that whatever happens in the mind is felt in the body. Now this might seem a bit counterintuitive. We might think, well, you know, something could be going on in my body um, that I'm not, I'm not aware of. Um, so this is quite a puzzling um, claim that Spinoza makes. Um, and perhaps it should make us sort of re reconsider how what we understand by the mind if we think in this way. But this 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 goes with the idea that the mind and the body are two aspects of the same thing, two expressions of the same thing. And if we go back to the metaphor of um, the mind and body being like two sides of the same coin, that illustrates a really important part of Spinoza's theory of the mind, which is that he says there's no causal link between the mind and the body. So remember, Descartes sort of worried about, having separated the mind and the body, he worried about, well, what's that causal link between the two? Spinoza argues that there is no causal link between the mind and the body, a view that's often known as parallelism. So the mind and body are two sort of parallel aspects of the same thing. And one, you know, what we know about, about parallel lines is that they're never going to intersect with one another. They're never going to meet each other. So just as the two sides of the same coin, you know, the heads and the tails, um, they're two parts of one thing, but they don't interact. Yeah? They don't sort of communicate with each other. Um, there's no causal relationship between them. They're just, they're just sort of parallel 
they're parallel faces of one of one individual. So perhaps one way to think about this, which um, is a bit more conducive to modern thinking, is the idea of the embodied mind. So we're not seeing the mind as something separate that kind of then has a causal relationship with the body. Rather, we see the mind itself as something embodied. Similarly, we see the body itself as um, suffused with consciousness, um, suffused with awareness. So moving on now to that third part of the ethics, which talks about human affects or human emotions or human passions. I want to concentrate for a while on what Spinoza says about joy, because joy is, as I think we would agree, um, really central to our thinking of what mental health might be. And Spinoza has a really interesting account of joy. Um, but first of all, let's have a look at this um, interesting and quite distinctive part of Spinoza's philosophy of the human being, which is his concept of canatus. Canatus is a Latin word um, meaning striving or effort. So early in part three of the ethics, Spinoza argues that each thing, as far as it can, strives to persevere in its being. Now he's not just talking about human beings here, he's talking about everything. And also he's not just talking about animals or plants or living things. He thinks that absolutely everything, you know, rocks, stones, planets, um, physical objects, and as well, you know, minds, <laughs> um, everything that exists strives to persevere in its being. So the striving to exist, the striving to be and to continue to exist is absolutely fundamental. It's kind of like a metaphysical principle for Spinoza. But the ethics itself is, is, is mainly a book about human life, about human beings, um, although he is considering human life um, in its sort of metaphysical relation to God or nature. Um, so, you know, he's not considering human beings just sort of on their own, um, but he is focusing on human life. So let's keep that focus on human beings. So human beings, like everything else, strive to persevere in our being. And he says, actually, this striving to, to sort of be ourselves, the striving to um, continue to exist, is really who we are. It's actually the essence of the human being is the striving. So um, Spinoza says, when this striving is related only to the mind, it's called will. Um, and that concept of will is one you might be familiar with. Um, but when it's related to the mind and the body together, it's called appetite. So this striving of both the mind and the body to persevere in being is called appetite. And then he defines desire as an appetite that we're conscious of. Okay, so we can have, as we know from, I guess, sort of modern uh, psychoanalysis, we can have strivings that we're not conscious of. We can have unconscious strivings. And so often, you know, we might be driven to persevere in being by appetites that we don't really understand, that we're not conscious of. Whereas desire is an appetite that we're conscious of. It's when we're conscious of our own um, willing, our own striving, our own effort to persevere in being. And when Spinoza defines the affects, 
the human emotions um, in part three of the ethics, he identifies three most fundamental emotions. And the first of these is desire. So desire is the most fundamental human emotion. And in fact, he says, desire is the very essence of the human being. In a sense, we are our desire, our conscious striving to persevere in being. The other two um, fundamental emotions are joy and sadness. And to understand what Spinoza means by joy and sadness, we have to look at um, another really kind of deep principle of his thinking, which is that human beings, like everything else, like everything apart from God, human beings are fluctuating beings. We are not eternal. And our power um, fluctuates, both the power of, of our mind and the power of our body, our capacity to act um, grows and also decreases. Now we can see this sort of over the course of a person's life. We could say that when a child is born and grows up, its power of acting, its power of thinking, and its sort of ability, its physical ability to do things increases. Yeah, as a baby starts to learn to talk and starts to learn to walk and goes to school and learns how to do maths, you know, these are examples of um, an increase in power. And then we can think of how people right at the end of their life um, can lose their mental and physical capacity. Um, and then, of course, eventually that decline will end up in, in death. So the kind of arc of a human life is one of sort of increasing in power and then decreasing in power. But also um, we can think of this fluctuation kind of on a daily basis. We may wake up one morning and just think, oh, you know, I can't... I can't go to work today, you know, I just feel sort of feel kind of weak or I feel depressed or I feel ill or anxious. Um, you know, we experience these fluctuations in our power through our life. So it's not just about growth and decay. It's also about just the experience of, of being a person. Sometimes we feel more empowered and more free than others. And of course, um, external circumstances, social conditions the way other people treat us is, is going to affect the extent to which we, we ourselves are empowered and powerful, able to act um, both, both intellectually and physically. So Spinoza is very clear about the fact that we are not um, sort of isolated beings. We're not substances. We're not self-sufficient. Um, we're always influenced by our environment and by our relationships with other people, by everything we interact with, everything we encounter um, will affect us. It may increase our power of acting or it may diminish it. So he writes again in part three of the ethics, the human body can be affected in many ways in which its power of acting is increased or diminished. So there he's talking about the human body but he also says the same thing about the human mind. Yeah, minds as well as bodies fluctuate. The mind can undergo great changes and pass now to a greater, now to a lesser perfection. Now, by perfection here, Spinoza isn't talking about some kind of moral goodness. Um, he's not talking about you know, being a perfect person. Rather, he's using that word uh, perfection in a more technical, philosophical sense in which it was often used um, in this period, where perfection means something like reality 
or power or existence. Yeah, so if, when, when God is, is, is described as the most perfect being um, in sort of classical philosophy and theology, that doesn't just mean that God is good. It means that God is kind of fully real, yeah, that God fully exists, has all the powers that any being could possibly have. And so perfection in this context basically means power. So when Spinoza says the mind can undergo great changes, pass now to a greater, now to a lesser perfection, he's talking about those fluctuations in power, um, in existence. Yeah, so we're constantly trying to persevere in existence, and that effort is sort of more or less successful. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we, we increase our existence, we exist more fully, sometimes we're diminished. So the mind can undergo great changes and pass now to a greater, now to a lesser perfection. And then he goes on to say, these passions indeed explain to us the affects of joy and sadness. By joy, I understand that passion by which the mind passes to a greater perfection. And by sadness, that passion by which it passes to a lesser perfection. So here Spinoza is offering us his definitions of joy and sadness an increase in our physical power and an increase in our mental or intellectual power. When we, when we become more powerful, Spinoza says, that feeling of, sort of becoming more powerful, that's what joy is. And then sadness, of course, is the opposite. Sadness is the feeling of, um, of a decrease in power, the feeling of a transition to, um, to a lesser sort of um, degree of reality, um, a diminishing of our existence. So yes, joy is the feeling of an increase in our power of acting, sadness the feeling of a decrease in our power of acting. But this is where the picture gets a bit more complicated. Whenever we understand something, this is an activity of the mind. So remember that definition of an idea that I talked about, that having an idea is um, something active. It's an act of thinking about something. And so if we have any, any idea, certainly any, any true idea, when we understand something, then that itself is um, an expression of our activity and an increase in our power. Yeah, so, so understanding is um, a power of acting, the power of the mind, Every time we understand something, that sort of act of understanding will be a feeling of um, an increase in power. And we can sort of relate to this, you know, the feeling that you get when um, you might be <clears throat> struggling to read a difficult text or struggling with a difficult maths problem. And while you're struggling with it, you have that sense of being kind of blocked or feeling frustrated or maybe a bit helpless. Um, and then when you kind of break through that and you think, oh, yes, OK, I understand it. That feeling of breaking through, it's like a sort of surge, an increase in power. Suddenly you feel capable, you feel able to see it, you can grasp it, you can move through those ideas then. Um, so that feeling of understanding is the feeling of an increase in power. And according to, def to Spinoza's definition, whenever our power is increased, we feel joy. So whenever we, we understand something, that's going to be um, a joyful experience. And so even if we um, have a sadness, 
um, even if we're conscious of a decrease in our power of acting, if we can understand that sadness, if we understand its causes, if we can see how the sadness arose, how it came about, um, then that very understanding of the sadness um, is something joyful, is something empowering. So this means that we're not just sort of subject to the fluctuations of our minds and bodies. We're not just we're not just kind of at the mercy of external influences. Yes, of course, our um, interactions with other people can make us feel joy. They can make us feel sadness. Um, you know, we we all know that. Um, but we're not just completely at the mercy of circumstance. If we understand our emotions, even our sort of negative emotions, even our sadness, then that sadness can be kind of transformed into something joyful. So there's an opportunity there to increase our power of understanding, increase our mind's power of acting, even when circumstances may be going against us and making us feel sad. So Spinoza argues that, and this is really a kind of summary of, of, of his view of the life of the mind, as, as we might call it, um, in life, then, it's especially useful to perfect, as far as we can, our intellect or reason. In this one thing consists man's highest happiness or blessedness. So our highest happiness or blessedness consists in perfecting our reason, perfecting our intellect. And just to um, clarify, when Spinoza uses this, this word or, um, the or that's in italics here on the slide, that's the or that just means that they're equivalent. Um, so intellect or reason are not sort of two alternatives. They're not two different things. Um, happiness or blessedness, that again, they're not two different things. They're just sort of two words um, to describe the same thing. So we have here um, an argument to say that the intellectual life and perfecting our, our intellect, developing our powers of understanding is our highest happiness or blessedness. Now, it sounds like Spinoza is advocating a philosophical life, as if he's saying, well, you know, to, in order to be happy, you have to become a philosopher, or perhaps a scientist, or perhaps you know, somebody who's, who's perfecting the intellect and pursuing knowledge. Now, it's certainly true that you know, Spinoza himself was a philosopher, he was a great philosopher, and he was also really interested in science. There were many new scientific discoveries happening in the 17th century and he took a great interest in those and so you know, he did think that um, not only doing philosophy but investigating nature through scientific experiment you know he, he really valued these activities but I don't think he's just advocating a philosophical life or an intellectual life in a narrow sense as I said before um, just sort of understanding our own emotions is a way to perfect our intellect um, to to enhance our powers of understanding so we can see how just getting to know ourselves as emotional beings and perhaps making use of um, therapeutic techniques um, or meditation techniques or something like that you know these can all be ways to um, enhance our intellect enhance the mind's life empower the mind so um, yeah I don't think Spinoza's arguing that everyone has to become a philosopher in order to be happy Rather, there's a more a broader, more holistic sense of understanding, self-understanding in play here.
when he talks about perfecting the intellect. Now, just to think a little bit about the, the very broad uh, historical context for some of these ideas. I recently read an essay by a German philosopher called Joseph Pieper, um, who lived in the 20th century. And um, in the mid-20th century, he gave a lecture, which then was published as an essay called Leisure, the Basis of Culture, a really interesting essay, which is about intellectual life. He's arguing for the life of the mind as really the most important possibility for human beings. And it's a really inspiring and interesting philosophical essay that I recommend to you. Joseph Pieper gives a historical argument for the way in which our understanding of um, the pursuit of knowledge, of the life of the mind, has changed um, in the modern period, how it's come to be conceived in that long period that we can call modernity. So he argues that conceiving knowledge as, quote, an active intellectual effort is the defining feature of modern thought. And he talks in particular about the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, who is really the archetypal um, Enlightenment philosopher. And he gives some quotations from Kant's philosophy that indicates that um, Kant understands um, understanding and intellectual life as work, as, as hard work. Um, but I think his, his analysis doesn't just apply to Kant. It, it, you know, we can go back to the 17th century, see some similar ideas there and then look forward to um, you know, the centuries following Kant and also to our contemporary culture, um, which is very much a culture of productivity, work, industriousness. So in the face of this um, very kind of busy interpretation of what intellectual life and intellectual work consists in, Joseph Pieper defends an older view of knowledge that he associates with ancient philosophy and with medieval thought, um, an older view of knowledge as contemplation, the contemplative life. And this is an ideal that emphasises stillness and rest rather than industriousness, busyness and productivity. So this is a little extract from his essay, Leisure, Leisure the Basis of Culture. He writes, the Middle Ages drew a distinction between the understanding as ratio and the understanding as intellectus. Now, actually, this, these two aspects of, of the human mind, ratio and intellectus, are found in Spinoza's Ethics too. So he makes this distinction between two kinds of thinking, ratio, which is translated as reason. And then for Spinoza, um, intellectus is, is a kind of intuition. And it's, that's a different kind of thinking, a different kind of knowing. So to continue the passage from Pieper, um, ratio or reason is the power of discursive logical thought, of searching and of examination, of abstraction, definition and drawing conclusions. So that's the kind of rational thinking that I think we're all familiar with. It's the kind of thinking we use when we're doing academic study, academic work. Intellectus, on the other hand, is the name for the understanding insofar as it is the capacity of simplex intuitus, which is just Latin for simple intuition, of that simple vision to which truth offers itself like a landscape to the eye. So a really beautiful metaphor here of um, a contemplative kind of knowing. Um, it's just like sitting and looking at a landscape. The faculty of mind, man's knowledge, is both these things in one, according to antiquity and the Middle Ages. Simultaneously, ratio 
and intellectus. And the process of knowing is the action of the two together. The mode of discursive thought is accompanied and impregnated by an effortless awareness, the contemplative vision of the intellectus, which is not active but passive, or rather receptive, the activity of the soul in which it conceives that which it sees. So quite a complicated passage in some ways, but basically he's arguing that there are these, that there are these two aspects of knowledge, um, the kind of hard-working, rational um, thinking, and a more contemplative, effortless awareness. And that um, in antiquity um, and, and the Middle Ages, these were seen as sort of working together. Yeah? These were two aspects of the human mind, two aspects of the process of understanding anything. Yes, there's hard work, but there's also a kind of effortless contemplation. And these two things go together. And Pieper's argument is basically that in um, the modern era, we've lost sort of half of that pair. We've lost the restful, contemplative part of um, our, our minds. Um, and so now we, we, we understand knowledge purely in terms of hard-working ratio. And we've sort of forgotten um, this other kind of thinking, the contemplative thinking. Now, when we go back to the 17th century, back to Spinoza, we find that actually Spinoza says something a bit similar to um, Pieper there. So Pieper's diagnosis um, is borne out by a remark that Spinoza makes um, in a letter he wrote um, fairly early in his career in 1661. And here Spinoza is criticising um, an English philosopher called Francis Bacon, very famous, very important English um, philosopher who was one of the founders of modern scientific method. And in this letter, Spinoza says there are three things wrong with Bacon's view of the human mind. Um, I'm not going to talk about the first two. The third thing that he criticises um, Bacon for is um, supposing that the human intellect is unquiet. It cannot stop or rest. And this is actually more or less a direct quotation from from Francis Bacon's own writing. So, you know, Francis Bacon does indeed claim that the human intellect is, is unquiet. It doesn't stop or rest. So we have this idea, um, a, a modern idea, um, conceived in this early modern period in the 17th century when scientific method was being established, the kinds of methods of intellectual work, intellectual thinking that are still with us today. And Francis Bacon has this view of the human mind as um, kind of constantly striving, constantly sort of restlessly pursuing knowledge. And this is something that Spinoza criticises Bacon for. Um, and it's true that Bacon did tend to reject a more contemplative view of philosophy. He, he didn't like this idea that, quote, you know, as if there were to be sought in knowledge a couch whereupon to rest a searching and restless spirit. Instead, he argued that the pursuit of knowledge should be industrious, oriented to use and action. So those are quotations from, from Bacon's writing. So um, I rather like this idea of knowledge as a couch that we're, <laughs> that we're sort of, um, I mean, you know, Bacon obviously doesn't like the idea that, that, that people are kind of lounging around and thinking and sort of speculating um, and sort of resting in their intellectual life. Um, he doesn't want to see 
um, the intellectual life as a place of rest for a searching and restless spirit, as he puts it. Rather, we should be kind of pursuing um, new knowledge very vigorously and actively. So that actually, again, sort of bears out the kind of um, diagnosis that Joseph Pieper gives of um, the modern view of knowledge and knowledge production. So in the ethics, Spinoza returns to this combination of active and contemplative intellectual life, which Pieper associates with ancient and medieval philosophy. So in many ways, you know, Spinoza is a very radical thinker. He does reject many of the um, philosophical concepts and ways of thinking from the medieval worldview. Um, so he's like Descartes in this respect. He's, he's a, a forward-looking modern thinker who offers a much more streamlined philosophy than um, the older um, worldviews did. So he's a very modern thinker, but on this question, um, he's actually retaining something um, that, you know, like Joseph Pieper, he thinks is really important in ancient and, and medieval thought. This idea that our, our intellectual life isn't just active, but it's also contemplative. It also involves rest, as well as striving or conatus and effort, which we've seen is really integral to his view of a human being. We are restless, striving beings, but we also um, are in search of rest. And um, Spinoza offers uh, a view of the human mind that, that, that sees intellectual rest as a real possibility. So in part four of the ethics, he talks about a particular affect, a particular emotion called acquiescentia in se ipso. Now acquiescentia, it looks a bit like that English word acquiescence. And uh, the root of acquiescentia is this uh, Latin um, word quies. You can see that in the middle of the word. And quies means rest, stillness, quietness. So acquiescentia in se ipso, um, we can translate this into English as sort of acquiescing in ourselves or resting in ourselves, sort of being in ourselves. And this, this affect, Spinoza argues, is the highest thing we can hope for. So, you know, this is really the kind of goal of, of, of human life, is this state of acquiescentia in se ipso. So this, this affect... Um, Spinoza defines as a joyful understanding. So acquiescentia in Seipso is, is, he tells us, it's a kind of joy. It's a feeling of joy. And it's a feeling of joy that we get when we ourselves understand something. So it's a feeling of joy um, in our own intellectual power. But because of that word quies in the middle, it's, also, it's not just joy. It's also a state of rest or peace. So sometimes acquiescentia, depending on the context in which Spinoza uses it in the ethics, sometimes it's best translated as peace of mind. Um, it's also been translated as contentment in oneself. So that sense of being sort of self-contained, content in yourself, not needing to um, strive for anything, not needing to get anywhere. Um, but it's a state of understanding. It's not just sort of lying around, like, you know, lounging around and resting um, in a kind of a mindless way. On the contrary, it's, it's a joyful understanding as well as peace of mind.
And so um, when Spinoza, right at the end of the ethics, this is a quotation right from the end of, of part five of the ethics, um, he talks about um, the contrast between um, the, the ignorant man or the ignorant person and the wise person. Um, so he concludes the ethics by writing, with this I finished all the things I wish to show concerning the mind's power over the affects or the emotions and its freedom, the mind's freedom. The ignorant man, the ignorant person, is troubled in many ways by external causes, always kind of subject to the vicissitudes of fortune, always fluctuating and being kind of turbulent, depending on what's happening to him, and unable ever to possess true peace of mind, acquiescentia, animi, peace of mind or peace of soul. He lives as though he knew neither himself, nor God, nor other things. On the other hand, the wise person is hardly troubled in spirit. There we have that word spirit that I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. Hardly troubled in spirit, but being conscious of himself and of God and of other things, he never ceases to be, but always possesses true peace of mind. So here at the end of the ethics, Spinoza makes this quite extraordinary claim that the, the wise person has a kind of eternal life. The wise person never ceases to be. And he emphasises that um, a wise person, a person who really understands himself and his place in God and his place in nature, his relations to others, when we truly understand ourselves, Spinoza argues, we don't fear death. And there's a kind of eternal life which, which comes with that. Now, that's sort of subject for another lecture, uh, Spinoza's doctrine of the eternity of the mind. So I'll leave that to one side. Um, the important thing I want to highlight here is this idea that the wise person, um, the person who understands himself, always possesses true peace of mind. If the way I've shown to lead to these things now seems very hard, still it can be found. Spinoza writes, and of course what is found so rarely must be hard. All things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. All things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. So there's, there's a kind of a mixed message at the end of the ethics. Spinoza tells us that you know, attaining this peace of mind is, you know, it's hard, you know, it's difficult. Um, there, is a, there is certainly a great effort and a great striving involved in perfecting our intellect, um, in learning to understand ourselves, learning to understand the world, investigating nature, perhaps understanding God, understanding our relationships with other people and how they affect us. Um, there's, there's a hard, you know, that's a hard task. And he says it's actually quite rare to achieve full peace of mind, you know, full flourishing, full mental health. And yet at the same time, he is encouraging his readers. Um, it can be found. It is possible to find rest. It is possible to find contentment and peace of mind. Um, and as we've seen, um, it's not all about striving. Um, at the centre of Spinoza's ethics is this um, sort of contemplative affect that he calls acquiescentia in seipso, which is this resting in ourselves and in God. So thank you very much for listening to this lecture. I hope I might have whetted your appetite uh, for Spinoza. Um, 
and also raise some of the philosophical questions that I think we're going to be returning to um, in different forms, in different ways, in lectures to come in the weeks ahead in this series. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.